Well, please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter in chapter 2 this morning as we continue on in our study through this wonderful epistle of Peter. We've studied his life, his journey. Now we're studying his pen, so to speak. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you're turning there, I had a book open in my hand earlier this week. It's written by a man named Howard Wasden. It's in my library. It's a book I bought several years ago, probably a decade ago. Say, who's Howard Wasden? Well, I believe if you looked him up today, he's a chiropractor. And I can't remember where he lives. I don't recall that fact, but he is a chiropractor. I I know that he went through school for that, and then he's been practicing, and I don't know if he's retired yet or not, but that's, that's his trade as of the last decade or two. But that wasn't always his trade. If you dig around in Howard Wasden's uh, Wikipedia file, not now, you'll find out that he, was, he put several, several years in with the Navy. And within the Navy, he was what we would call a special operator. He was a Navy SEAL, but not just a normal Navy SEAL. He was an elite member of SEAL Team 6, as they called it back then. Not just a regular member of SEAL Team 6, but he was a sniper for SEAL Team 6. It's a gripping account, this book, of his career as an elite SEAL And the the pointy end of that category being a sniper for SEAL Team 6. And his stories, you have to read with a filter sometimes, but what he had to do in the name of warfare is just captivating and um, sobering, to say the least. He's one of the SEALs, those of you who have seen the movie Black Hawk Down, he's a SEAL that didn't show up in that movie, but he was wounded in that whole account, and that brought him to his retirement. It's quite a man. But early in that book, around page 61 or so, he's going back and telling you how he got into the Navy, and then he went through uh, the time of sifting out who would become a Navy SEAL, and they had to go through what's called BUDS. And if you can endure BUDS for several months, you can make the cut. And on these two pages, he's talking about one of the things that the guys going through BUDS had to go through, and it was called the O course, the obstacle course. And it was extremely strenuous, extremely intense. And you had to do it almost daily, and you had to be timed while you were doing it. I mean, there were some parts of the O course where you were climbing up uh, 60 feet of netting. There were times on the O course where you had to go through amazing balance exercises and sprints and groundhogging on your elbows underneath ropes. There was another time in the O course where part of it is still you have to climb up three stories by jumping to the next story and with your, then pulling your own body weight up. And the O course is what would cause a lot of guys who wanted to be SEALs It would cause them to ring out, ring the bell, quit. And in this book, Howard's talking about, he's writing about, man, when he first started Buds, he just felt like a nobody who couldn't do anything. He had great endurance, but 
he, he looked across the room at his, his class, the other, the other candidates, and there was, a, there was a triathlete there. He's like, how can I compete with that? And he looked on the other part of his class, and there was a starting uh, football player from Alabama in amazing shape. So how can I compete with that? But Howard just kept his face down, kept his focus on, and he endured. But it was the old course, he remembers one day, where he looked, where he was having to jump up and pull his weight up three stories. And he watched that Alabama guy fail, the football player. He watched that triathlete that particular day on the old course quit. But he himself, he just continued to endure, and he ended up passing, and those other guys didn't. Yeah, the obstacle course, that, that was the one thing that really thinned out the class. You might start with over 100 candidates in a class and only graduate 20 or 30 to the SEAL ranks. So intense. But one of the constants in that thinning out is the obstacle course. It's interesting, the obstacle course for BUDS never changes. The obstacles are extremely predictable. No surprises. They're waiting for you. Obstacles are always extremely predictable when it comes to not just training to be a Navy SEAL, but when it comes to the church, who just at the end of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, Peter challenged them, even mandated, that the church must love one another. But as you would expect, with a command like that, there's going to be, listen, constant and very predictable obstacles. So let's remind ourselves where we are in the context of this letter. First of all, as we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we are going to finally receive only our fourth command in the entire letter. We've seen in verse 13 uh, the command to fix our hope on Christ. We saw in verse 15 of chapter 1 to be holy. We've seen in verse 17 of chapter 1 the command, the third command, to grow in the fear of the Lord, to live in a state of awe. And these are telescoping out one from another. But it's here in verse 22 of chapter 1 that we had our our fourth command, excuse me, our fifth one will be in chapter 2. The fourth one was in verse 22 of chapter 1, and that's to love. I want you to look at verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently one, love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Right in the, at the beginning of that, in verse 22, we have the fourth command in this epistle. And that's to love. In other words, as you fix your hope on God, as you grow in your holiness and an awareness of the presence of God, you will grow in loving other believers, even and especially those that are hard to love. That's where we are now. But then we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we are going to have our fifth command. Our fifth command. It's interesting as we come into these first three verses, which really 
these three verses are one sentence in the Greek and in some of your English translations. Chapter 2 brings us into a chapter where later on in this chapter, we're going to get different word pictures, if you will, of unity and love in the body of Christ. Not just Peter's readers there and then, but also here and now. We're going to see in this chapter uh, that we are called growing infants together. We are going to be called in this chapter living stones. We're going to be called in this chapter a chosen people. We're going to be called in chapter 2 temporary citizens. These are pictures of who we are together as we prepare to suffer. And we find in all of these pictures, in the, in the shadow of suffering and persecution, that love will be critical in every one of them. Love is critical. And this first picture is what we're going to see in verses 1-3. through three. And we'll have our main command in verse 2. And what Peter's doing with this long Greek sentence, these three verses, is he is going to expose to his readers then and now what are the predictable, extremely predictable obstacles to loving other believers like he just commanded us at the end of chapter 1. It's not like we get a command to love everyone and then this is going to be easy. It's not. But the, predict- but the obstacles are at the very least predictable. And he, he gives them to us in these three verses. And so we have to ask the question, what are the obstacles to the love that Peter prescribed at the end of chapter 1? There are three of them. Just jot them down. These are the obstacles. If you know what they are, you'll see that they're very predictable. The first obstacle is, you can just say it with one word, blindness. Blindness. If you want more than that, it can be, you can write down blindness instead of awareness. Where is that? It's in verse 1. Follow along. Therefore, in other words, based on what I just said from, uh, for the last couple verses of chapter 1, 22 to 25 in particular, because the command is to love other believers, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. What is this? Well, he he gives us a a very helpful image here of putting aside. And it's in the the middle voice. Say, what does that mean? It means you don't wait around for someone else to enter your life and put these aside. This is something that you have to do yourself. You yourself must enter in, driven by the grace of the Gospel, and intentionally and specifically put some things aside. This isn't a verb, it's, but it, it carries with it, or this isn't a command, it carries with it a, a, an imperative force, though, of the verb that's coming up in verse 2. This Greek word and similar words to it mean to take off your clothes. It means to disrobe. It means to cleanse yourself of something. You know, I, in all fairness, two weeks ago, I, or no, it was uh, last week, I gave an illustration about Michael Jordan, and I think he's better than LeBron. So I heard you sneer. I've had some comments, so it's my turn now to say nice things about LeBron. Okay? 
let's say LeBron left the flash of the Los Angeles Lakers and wanted to close out his career back in Cleveland yet again and see if he can bring another championship to that city with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't have any intel on that, but let's just say that he wanted to do that. After all of the lights, after all of the bells and whistles of him being with the Los Angeles Lakers, after all that, if he shows up in Cleveland next season to be a Cleveland Cavalier, to ride into the sunset with his career, what would it be like if he came out on the floor the first night at a home game and he's still wearing a Lakers jersey? I mean, he's going to get booed no matter what happens when he walks out. But, but in a Lakers jersey still in Cleveland? No. No, there has to come a point where LeBron says, I have to take the Lakers jersey off and then put the Cleveland Cavaliers jersey on. You don't put the Cavalier jersey on over the Lakers. You take one off so that you can put something else on. That's the motion. That's the energy you see in this little phrase, putting aside. You say, why are you saying a lot about this? I'm not done yet. I really want you to feel the weight of how the New Testament writers reach for this picture constantly. I want you to, I want you to see it. And they might use one of two or three different words, but it's sometimes, often, it's the same Greek word, but it's the same idea, and it's, I can't just add something to cover up a vice in my life, a sin. No, no, no. I have to take something off first, create a vacuum that I fill it with a virtue of Christ-likeness. It always has to be that way. Christianity is not about covering up the ugly. Christianity is about becoming more like Jesus Christ. And I want you to feel the weight of this before we we press into the meaning of the different words in verse 2. I want you to look at Romans 13. Hold your finger here. We're going to go to a few passages quickly. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. And if you don't want to turn, just write these down. 13, verse 12. Same picture. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, The night is almost gone, the day is near. Listen to this. Therefore, let us, here it is, lay aside the deeds of darkness. And whenever you lay something aside, whenever you take something off, whenever you cut something out, you create a vacuum that must be filled. He says, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's that picture. You're going to see it again. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4 to a very familiar verse to us here at Calvary. Ephesians chapter 4. It says in verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you, here it is, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. You're going to see it again if you go to the right, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul again says, Do not lie to one another since you, here it is, laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Verse 10, And you've put on the new self. You're going to see it again, but let's, let's, let's lean away from Paul, most likely now, and go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Same picture, same type of illustration. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside, there it is, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. 
and let us run with endurance the race set before us. There's a put off, and there is a new goal, a put on. You say, are we done? I want, to, I want you to see one more New Testament author, and it's our Lord's little brother, James. In James chapter 1, verse 21, he grabs for this picture too. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls and prove yourself doers of the word. There's a put off, not a covering up. It's a put off so that you can put something else in its place. You say, man, you, you spend a lot of time on it. I, if, the, if the New Testament is stuttering this much to say the same thing, we are wise to give it our attention. I mean, if it's saying it by different authors, then we would be careful, grace disciples to understand, wow, this isn't just something I need to think about once a month or once a year. I need to have this taking off and putting on in my thinking every five minutes. There are things that I might be blind to that I'm not aware of. And Peter would add now back here in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you're not aware of some of the things you need to put off, you will not be able to love other believers. You say, well, what does he point at? How do, how do I know what to put off? What are these obstacles? And he lists about, uh, several specific sins that kill genuine love. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, putting aside, here's the list, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And he's saying if you're blind to these things, you won't be able to love others sincerely. So what do these words mean? Just real quickly, the word malice, this particular word, occurs 11 times in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes it's translated with simply the word wickedness. It comes right up to almost being an umbrella term for anything evil, anything wicked. But in this context of a command to love and a command to put off what kills love, what does malice mean towards other people in a love-killing way? It means this. It means to be ill-postured um, towards people. It means to, to have um, uh, ill will or ill wishes for someone. You might be nice to them, to their face, but as you read their social media or as you chat with them on the surface of the fellowship hall or the lobby, your, your inside person is just folding your arms, scowling, and you're hoping that things begin to burn in their life. It's an ill will towards someone. I mean, this is exactly the opposite of being burdened for someone. You want them to go down in flames. You don't want them to have the money they have. You don't want them to have the success they have. You don't want them to have the giftedness they have. You don't want them to have how, uh, God's blessing in their ministry that they have right now. Uh, you're looking at them and you're listening and you're smiling on the outside, but on the inside you're saying, I hope all that stops for you. That's malice. What's the goal of malice? It's to harm. What's this next word? Deceit. It says all deceit. What is this? I like what uh, Robertson 
uh, the Greek scholar says, this is, this is the picture of catching something with bait. I plan on fishing up north tonight or tomorrow at the latest. We're going to just go up for two days for Father's Day since so much family's in town. With, uh, uh, we have three family strains in town for a wedding yesterday. We're heading up north, and I'm taking my tackle box, and I want to catch something. And I, I want to deceive the fish, and I want to use this Greek word. I'm going to have rubber worms. I'm going to have floating rapalas and poppers, and I totally want to fool them so that they'll give me what I want. The goal is to get. The goal of this deceit that Peter lists is to get. It's, listen to this. You want a definition for this? It's a deliberate, intentional manipulation. Some of you may want to use, or you're familiar with the phrase, gaslighting. Christians can do that too. Tell people what they want to hear only to control them. Or tell them what they don't want to hear so that you gain an advantage and control them and change their perspective. That's the word Peter is reaching for here with deceit. That's the idea. There's another one. And by the way, the next three, the last three in the Greek are all plural. So I'm going to read them that way. It says, and hypocrisies and envies and slanders. What are, what are hypocrisies? This is, this is fake love. This is, this is you, you're familiar with the phrase faux leather. I mean, it looks like leather, it feels like leather, but it's not leather. This is faux love. This is a fake concern. You might pray for someone in the corporate prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, which is such an important gathering. You might pray for someone, but really it's not a true concern, a true love, because outside of someone bringing it up as a, as a prayer request, you don't move towards them when you're not in that corporate gathering. You, you might read it in the news and prayer and, and word a quick prayer so you can tell them you did, but there's, you're just not in it. You're faking a love. Watch this. Can I give you a profound statement? No one ever fakes hate. They fake love. That's what Peter's saying. What about envies, plural? This is simply to want something you don't have or to resent something you are not. It's the exact opposite of rejoicing for a person or with a person over what God has given to them to enjoy. This is you leaning into someone's life or profile saying, I wish they didn't have that and I had all that. That's not love. That's not love. The commentator Hebert says this is the moral this particular Greek word is the moral cancer in any organization. But before Hebert wrote that, the writer of Proverbs put it this way in Proverbs 18 verse 30 in the ESV, envy makes the bones rot. It's ugly. The Bible Knowledge Commentary calls it a resentful discontent. Or there's one more plural word here of what must be put off. You've got to see it, put it off. And it's slanders, plural. This just means to run someone down to other people. It means to, 
to, to season something with just enough untruth or nuance so that someone else buys it and they believe now what you said about this other person that you don't love. It specializes in innuendo. It specializes in taking gossip to the next level. Because, well, when you try to persuade someone about a third party that you don't love, what are you really doing? What am I really doing when that happens? Not only do I not want you to like them or love them, I want you to adore me. Because I told you this stuff. That's slander. That's the exact opposite of building up. Instead, it's running down. Schreiner, in his excellent commentary on 1 Peter, says, These are well-timed words that carry insinuations about others and are often all that is necessary to sell it. Malice, deceit, hypocrisies, envies, slanders. The goal of malice is to harm. The goal of deceit is to get. The goal of hypocrisy is to fool The goal of envy is to win. The goal of slander is to label. And all of those, as one commentator said, are just expressions of love, all right. Self-love. And Peter's saying to us, we have to get painfully specific in evaluating ourselves in light of these five categories. And that's not enough. Because he's writing this to a church, giving that church permission to cross-examine each other. And sometimes the most helpful thing we can do as Christians is to take these definitions, these words, and go to someone that will speak the truth to you in a loving way. You know they will. Say, how am I doing? Help me see what I can't see. I don't want to be blind to this. It's true, when you think of those five words, we often can see these clearly in other people's lives, right? But we can be blind to them in our own lives. There's one word I left out. It occurs three times in verse 1. Did you catch me? Look at it again. There, I'll emphasize it with my voice. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all slanders, Peter's not cutting us any slack here. He's saying, not just towards one person, but in your gathering, your corporate body dynamics as a church, in all your relationships, do this inventory. It all has to go, or you're just putting a Band-Aid on cancer when you put something back on top, when you put on something. Man, Peter, you mean in my marriage? Yes. In my parenting? Uh Uh-huh. On the deacon board? Yep. With the people that are a lot different from me? Yeah. In every direction. You want to know what one of the obstacles are? Is to loving the way that Peter said at the end of chapter 1? It's blindness. It's blindness. But another obstacle is not only something that you can't see, but it's something you can't taste. The second obstacle, number two, is starvation. Not just blindness, but number two, starvation. You say, I want to say more. Okay, 
Starvation instead of nourishment. That will keep you from loving the way he's prescribed. Starvation instead of nourishment. Now look at chapter 2, or chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Hmm. Did he just call us babies? Yep. Not just babies. Brand newly newly minted babies. Newborn infants. But this is a good thing. He's not doing here what Paul will do in 1 Corinthians 3 and the author of Hebrews will do in Hebrews chapter 5 and and say that you 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 need to grow up. This is, the way Peter's using this, he's saying there's a good way to be an infant. And this is, this is what you need to be if you're going to love like I've told you to love. Newborn babies. He's talking to people that have been veteran Christians for a while. I mean, look in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These believers have some miles to them already. Verse 23 of chapter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. These are people that have years on this earth, and against the backdrop of that, they probably have years of being a believer. And he says, but there has to be a point where you never quite grow up. And it has to do with what you long for. And it's right here we have the fifth command of this epistle. And here it is. Long for the pure milk of the Word. Long for. In other words, crave. This particular Greek word occurs nine times in the New Testament. I remember when I went from having, Lori and I went from having no children to having two. I didn't need coffee for years. I mean, we had two suddenly. We went to the hospital with, with no children in the house. We came back with two. They looked so much alike and sounded so much alike, we put pink yarn on Alicia's wrist and purple yarn on Janelle's wrist. And Janelle's wearing a purple dress today, so I just helped you out. If you want to get it. And uh, it was green, too. We had a little green in there, sometimes purple. Am I getting that right, or am I messing up? That's blue? That's what I said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll go with blue. It looks like purple reminded me of when you were born. Okay, no. I mean, we, we, we were like, our hands were full. I remember holding these, my daughters in the hospital, not wanting to break their neck because it was flying all over the place, and, and, and just hold them. And, and with the slightest touch on the cheek, a newborn turns their head. Why? To feed. The slightest touch on the cheek. That's how God created. The Creator wired them. And, and these newborns were so eager with the slightest touch to consume what they love, and that's more milk. That's the picture here. Peter says, be a baby. It doesn't take much, but that you turn towards the Word. Crave it. It's like what I read in Job chapter 23, verse 12. It says, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
The psalm writer has a lot to say about this. Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Peter says, you need to be a baby in some regards, in this regard specifically. Crave, long for, and what does he call it here? In the New American it says, long for the pure milk of the word. Interesting wording. A a literal uh, translation of that would give you two descriptors of the milk. It uses the word pure. This is the exact opposite word of deceit that we just saw in verse 1. Actually, it's the same word with we would call it the alpha primitive in front of it means it has the word the letter a in front of it meaning it's the exact opposite of the deceit i just mentioned this milk is totally honest with you and that's not the only descriptor it says um, uh, the pure milk of the word the word word there is actually the word spiritual you say well what's significant about that well it's the word uh, lagikas We get our word logic from it. You say, is that the word? Well, I believe so. And it's the word logos was just used in verse 25. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the Greek. And so it's a play of words. This word I just told you about is like milk. And it will be totally honest with you, and it will be totally informed and give you exactly what you need in a rational way. The Word will always be straight up with you. So long for it. As a new... You say, how how much? How intensely? Once a week? Well, does an infant only want to eat once a week? That's your picture. No, it's constant. It's constant. We starve ourselves from the Word, don't we? We let our activity, our life pace, our parenting, our schooling, our ministry, our hobbies, our Christian books, our internet, our social media is starving us when we think we're consuming. Because it takes us away from what truly feeds us. The founder of the Wilds Christian Camp used to always tell us this. This is just something he he said to himself every morning. It just, it's what got him into the Word. Four words. No Bible, no breakfast. That's what he lived by every day. I'm going to be in the Word before I eat breakfast. If, I don't, if, I don't, if I'm not in the Word, I don't eat breakfast. I would like to expand on his little sentence with two more words. No Bible, no breakfast, no growth. Or Peter would say, no love. It says in verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. What do you mean grow in respect to salvation? It's a salvation he has been talking about from the beginning of this epistle. This salvation which finds you, you don't find it. This salvation that is initiated by God, not you. This salvation that is on and active now has a constant eye in the future when the salvation will be completed in the presence of God in heaven. 
with a glorified body. He says, if you're fixated on that, as I've been telling you in, first, in the first chapter, Peter says, you'll grow in respect to that salvation. You'll live as a believer, removing any doubt that you're a disciple of mine. Hebert, in his commentary, says, the true aim of Bible study is never a mere mastery of its contents, but rather a transforming experience with the Lord who reveals himself in his word. Man, you can't add anything to that. I'll make you a promise. And it's something I see active in my life. Maybe your journal reads the same as mine. But isn't it true that every day, this coming week, every day will cry out to us to be the exception day to not be in the Word? You have good intents, but every day it will greet you and cry out to you to be the exception to not be in the Word that day. So just expect that. And remember the baby with the slightest touch turns for nourishment. And by the way, you are never not craving something. Well, there's a third obstacle to loving as we've been commanded. Just one word, amnesia. You say, I want more than that. Okay, write this down. Amnesia instead of remembering. It's not, that you, it's not just that you might not see something, you might not taste something, but you might not remember something. And this will be an obstacle to you loving as a gospel person. Amnesia. Look at verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now we're at the end of the sentence. If you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. So the word if there, a condition, that makes us go back to the last part of verse 2. So that by it, the, the, the milk of the word, you may grow in respect to the salvation that defines you, if indeed you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is uh, what some theologians call an introspective if. And what Peter's doing here is that he is actually quoting, even the New American Standard doesn't capture it here with all caps this time, he is quoting Psalm 34. You say, how do you know it's Psalm 34? Because he's going to quote Psalm 34 again, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 of his epistle. As Peter is writing this epistle to suffering believers and believers that are facing upcoming persecution, he's writing here and he has Psalm 34 open over here. And in this verse 3, he pulls from Psalm 34, verse 8, where it says this. I'm going to give it to you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Is good. How blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. Quite a fitting psalm for those who are going to be persecuted. Taste and see. In other words, Peter's saying, you want to love? Then you have to watch out for this obstacle. Forgetting the gospel is an obstacle that will not allow you to love other Christians as you should. The principle is this, God's goodness and kindness to you is tasted nowhere more keenly than in His salvation of you. If you forget God's goodness in salvation, you won't love 
If you forget God's love and kindness and salvation for another believer, you won't love them. But he's saying here, by quoting Psalm 34, but if you fixate on the Gospel, you'll be able to love them. Because the more you taste, the hungrier you will get. You know what the next illustration is going on that statement, right? Dom's Bakery. Apple fritters. There's two boxes of them in my office now, and there's two locks on my door. We're taking them up north with us. I'm not even allowed to touch them. So, uh, but if you, the more you taste of an apple fritter from Dom's, the, the hungrier you get to finish it. So, you know what's interesting? And especially you men who were part of 4D men this past year, our theme was progressive sanctification. Growing out of Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, we put off the old man, which we call repent. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which we call renew. And then you put on the new man, which we call replace. Remember that, men? Repent, renew, replace. We spent a whole year focusing on those, those three words. I see every one of them here with Peter. Not in the same order, but still necessary. In chapter 2, you have putting off or repent. That's verse 1. And then he talks about the, the milk of the word that's renew. You say, well, where's the replace? The end of chapter 1. Love one another. It's all here. But you know, as I was studying this yesterday and just restudying it, reworking through it, there's a fourth hour that I not only see here, but I see it in Ephesians chapter 4. It's relish. Relish the gospel. Repent of sin. Put it off. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind by nourishing yourself in the Word. And then put on Christ-likeness, which is love. The four R's of replacement are right here. They're not unique to Paul. Replenish, repent, renew, replace. So you say, what are the obstacles to this love, this Christian love? It's, it's simple. Blindness to what needs to be put off. Starvation from what you might be depriving yourself of in the Word, and amnesia, forgetting the Gospel that rescued you. But if you know the problem, listen, like those Navy SEALs on the O course, if you know the O course, what's coming up next every time, then you can get through this by God's grace. Say, so what do you mean? Well, if you understand that the problem of blindness will keep you from loving, your eyes can be open. Open constantly to what needs to be put off. If you know a risk is starvation, then you can nourish your bodies and your heart with abundant nourishment by spending regular time in the Word of God every single day as an infant, just with the slightest touch. Turn. If you know the problem's amnesia, then you need to constantly treasure what Jesus has done for you, what the Father has done for you in the Gospel. And guess what? With open eyes, abundant nourishment, and constant treasuring, you can love like that. At the end of chapter 1. Hmm. A scholar, still alive today, overseas. I think he's in our country now, still, in his retirement. I wish I would have been reading him earlier in life and ministry, but I'm grabbing onto him at this point. Sinclair Ferguson 
wrote this sentence that captured me this morning, actually. If Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, I will not be slow to embrace them. In other words, gospel people see gospel people. And the result is love like theirs. These are the obstacles. And let me say, on this Father's Day, where I've called out all the men in our midst, real men aren't afraid to love like this. Lord, thank you again for this day of celebration of your kindness to us as our Heavenly Father, if nothing else, and your creation of the home and the gift of fathers in our lives and in our church. But Lord, it's no mistake that in your providence, the timing was this text, this one sentence, this one Greek sentence in three verses. For all of us to be wise to the obstacles that will not allow us to love like you've prescribed. But seeing them, seeing them, means that we will be able to love to a degree that we never knew possible. Because we have been captured by your gospel and your love. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray.